Shit Platypus Says, episode 41. Hello and welcome to another episode of Shit Platypus Says, the commentary on the commentary on the left. In the first segment, Sophia and I talked to Spencer Leonard, a founding member of Platypus. We discussed the Rittenhouse trial and the response by the left, including responses by weekly workers, Daniel Lazare, Bolshevik tendency, and statements made on MSNBC, CNN, and the rest of the misinformation networks. The second part of our episode focuses on the recent events in Australia, where government vaccine mandates that require construction workers, among others, to prove that they have received their first vaccination before being allowed to work, were met by a hostile response. Union members of the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union, the CFMEU, attacked the headquarters to mark their rejection of the union leadership's support for the mandate. Andreas and Ryan ask, was this merely a right-wing protest? Was it anything more? It's a substantial, heavy, hitting episode. Maybe you'll have uh, some things to discuss around the family dinner table during the holidays. Just kidding, that's probably not a good idea. But do enjoy it and get educated. As always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, as well as on platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus followed by the numerals 1917.org. If you like the podcast, share it and leave us a review. Tell us how, uh, how we're doing. Pam and I are joined uh, by Spencer Leonard, who is a founding member of Platypus and a historian on imperialism, to take up the Rittenhouse trial and discussion around that. Well, I guess we should say that we're recording this after Rittenhouse was acquitted in all counts, Mm -hmm. and there were not riots in the streets, like predicted by many. And um, he's then given several interviews, including with Tucker Carlson, As it turns out, he doesn't really seem to have any strong ties to any kind of conservative movement. As such, he even pointed out prosecutorial misconduct. He's for reform. And so this character that that the liberal left has turned him into seems to have been just a caricature. At the same time, we could say that the the kind of propaganda work done of this young man as a patriot and standing up for conservative values was also seems to be somewhat of a caricature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now reflecting on what the left has said about this case is a lot was about this question of self-defense. It came down to whether or not this was first degree murder or self-defense. Mm-hmm. But everywhere it's been well, it seemed that everywhere by the left, it's been taken up that he's affiliated with the right um, and that it's to do with um, racism. But there really seems no ground for that, seeing as, I don't know, he gave his phone over to the police when he was when it all happened and they couldn't find any affiliation with the right. The three guys that were shot were white men. But it seems that, well, like you've just mentioned, it seems to have been politicized on both sides. Um, 
It was really egregious. Um, just to clarify, I mean, maybe this has been said already, but just for mm-hmm. our listeners, I mean, the dude was called a white supremacist by everyone on the liberal left. The grounds for that were that this, the grounds, as it were, were that he was he was a Trump supporter from all accounts, and he was a police cadet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was. Uh, you know, he had made statements about you know blue lives matter which is a pro police slogan and that there was i believe there was footage or photographs on his social media showing that he was a gun user or a gun enthusiast you know something like that so you know by conventional definitions of left and right which you know i think we should seriously question here But, you know, understanding the Democrats as the left and the Republicans as the right, you know, he's right wing in that sense. He's just not a member of an organized militia or white supremacist group. You know, just to clarify that there's no evidence for that. Right. There was a photograph taken of him doing an OK sign in a bar with the Proud Boys. And that was one of the things that came out most Mm -hmm. interestingly in one of the interviews you know there have been a couple now where he talks about how his initial lawyers whom he had to fire were trying to turn him into a kind of poster boy for the right and they arranged for this meeting with the proud boys uh and you know that it was after that that he fired them because they weren't getting him out of jail they were turning him into a sort of a martyr a martyr right yeah seeing as you bring up like the way in which people just assume that the assumption of what left and right is or something and especially around the issue of gun control and the second amendment maybe we could go into that well there there are two distinct issues right just the the right to to bear arms and this this claim that this was self-defense and what's at issue in the trial was whether or not this was an act of self-defense right so the Rittenhouse case began with the killing of, of three men in Kenosha on the third night of protests and rioting that were taking place there in August of last year. So there was the there was the police shooting of a man named Jacob Blake, um, who he was paralyzed by the police. Yes, who, you know, whether that shooting was justified or not, I think is one matter, but it was misportrayed immediately in the media as though he was unarmed and he was not unarmed by his own admission. Uh, I'm not justifying the, the actions of the police, but simply to say that so much of the notoriety or the political significance of this case has to do with the really shameless lying of the media in the United States uh, that are entirely in the tank for the Democratic Party. That event in Kenosha, which was, as I say, quite violent, there was definitely rioting, massive destruction of property for a small town, which is what it is, was just one more in a long series of protests and riots. Certainly many people, you know, assembled and protested in the summer of, of 2020 
peacefully, but there was also uh, the menace of, of property destruction. And in the context of that, for instance, in Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed, there were a lot of people who sought to protect property with firearms. So there were a lot of black people who were protecting their own businesses in Minneapolis with AR-15s. You know, not much was made of that in the news, but you know, it was reported. Mm-hmm. Kyle Rittenhouse was a local. His family lived in Kenosha. There was a lot of lying about that, you know, as if he was a militiaman or, you know, some white supremacist who was coming from out of state to, to make trouble. I think his father lives in Kenosha, right? And then his mother lives right. in, in a different state. Father and grandmother, presumably his father's mother, I don't know. Uh, and other cousins and whatnot live there. And he was working in Kenosha as a lifeguard mm-hmm. over last summer. And, and, and he went perhaps, you know, imprudently, but, you know, certainly not illegally to protect property in Kenosha uh, with a firearm, but also to, to treat people who were injured. And, you know, there was... There were accounts of people being injured in the previous nights. And so he went uh, with a medical kit and a rifle uh, to protect himself as well as to protect property and to offer aid to people in Kenosha. That was the context. And that was a completely legal carrying of a, of a rifle. Uh, he didn't have the right to buy that rifle. Uh, but he had the right to carry it. Uh, the laws make a distinction. Uh, you know, so, for instance, you can buy your son a rifle. To hunt, for example. That's different than you know, the right to walk into a gun store and to purchase a gun. And, and the laws in America make a distinction, likewise, between the right to purchase a rifle and a handgun. And so this is, you know, even though it looks like a big, scary rifle, it's a very common rifle that people use to, to hunt uh, and for target practice and, you know, whatever sort of sport uh, people use rifles for. And so he was um, carrying a AR-15, uh, I think it was Smith & Wesson AR-15, and, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, that was considered by liberals itself to be a provocation. And that's really the, the kind of the crux of their claim is that the, the open carrying of a firearm is a provocation. Yeah. To bring a gun to a bar fight. I think that was what uh, right. prosecution. But of course, you know, there, there's been widespread carrying of guns in, in the protests in 2020. I mean, there were, there were shootings in Portland of people on both sides of, of of those protests. I mean, I've read stuff on the on the left, um, like the Bolshevik tendency here in the UK, writing that that well, immediately calling uh, Rittenhouse a fascist and a white supremacist, and then it's that actually fascists and white supremacists don't have the right to be armed, and it was not wrong for those who tried to disarm him. It seems to be their stance. Right, and so this really opens up the question of you know whether whether being anything other than a Democrat makes you a criminal. <laughs> you know, I mean, 
it's pretty much that. I mean, I, there was never any evidence for anything more than that. You know, and I don't even think having a, a kind of a generally positive attitude towards the police would make you a Republican in this country. I mean, that, that's simply, you know, a widespread attitude as it is, you know, everywhere. You know, the police are here to help you. As limited as that understanding may be, you hear it all the time. People being, you know, the police being called first responders. Right. And you'll hear Democrats talk in that language all the time about, you know, both, you know, EMT and firefighters, but also policemen. And, you know, so if you were talking about, for instance, 9-11, um, you know, many of the first responders uh, whose lives were lost in that event and would be widely, you know, memorialized on all sides were policemen, of mm. course. Yeah. And I've seen like people comparing him to white civilian slave patrols in the 19th century. It's just a slander of the, what the truth seems to be. And then uh, what it means for the left to be saying that as well. This has come up in several of our panels, so I guess it's worth repeating. This is a kind of talking point now by a lot of Democrats and progressives who think that the police as we know it now originates in some kind of slave hunting uh, militias. And, you know, it's just really not the case that the professionalization of the police happens in the late 19th century when they're putting down strikes and working people in their conflicts. And, but that it's very confused. It's a kind of confused narrative. Police and it happens for the same reason that it happens in Europe. You know, of course, you know, the Bobbies, right? Uh, the policemen in, in England, you know, are they're called Bobbies because of Sir Robert Peel. And, you know, they're a function of the proletarianization of society. And, you know, of course, you know, there's no slave catching going on in England, uh, but England innovates the emergence of urban policing. I kind of tuned this out for a long time. I felt that there were these two sides that were arguing against one another. And then I started watching the trial itself, and I saw the prosecution bringing up how Rittenhouse was silent after um, the event. He didn't speak to anyone about what happened that day, and he was questioning him on the stand about this, the prosecution was. And the judge stopped the proceedings, made the jury leave. I was like, you can't, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. You can't question mm -hmm. his right to remain silent. It's law school 101. And I thought, okay, this guy is just incompetent. But also it made me feel kind of my, you know, the, the part of me that's just a, a liberal person. I, of course, would like to have my constitutional rights. That seems to have completely gone out of the window for people. Like the fact that this man's constitutional rights were in danger like it doesn't seem to get under the skin of liberals the idea that he's innocent until he's proven guilty right like that there was an implication of guilt because he didn't speak was unconstitutional i mean i think that the issue of you know how the left understands this 
really gets to something that um, you know Sophia was telling me before uh, we started recording about Daniel Lazar or Lazare writing about you know the datedness, the anachronism of bourgeois rights. Because what we're talking about in the right to self-defense is an, is a elementary civil right, you know, the right to protect yourself, which is all that's at issue here, you know, that's certainly all that was issue, at issue in the trial, is clear. So if you look at the history of the right of self-defense in the U.S. and relatedly the right to bear arms, it, of course, goes right back to the revolution. And it goes, you know, of course, deeper into the English Revolution, where, you know, of course, you know, the armed citizenry, the armed burghers, you know, of the cities of England, you know, were the living embodiment of bourgeois freedom. Right. And. You can see this, like, in every museum in Amsterdam, right? Armed bourgeois citizens, you know, the uh, night watchman, right, in the Rijksmuseum uh, in the center of Amsterdam is an expression of, you know, modern bourgeois freedom. And the question is, is it obsolete? We could yeah, quote yeah. Thomas Jefferson, you know, but we could also quote Wendell Phillips. We could quote Frederick Douglass. You know, these are two abolition, American abolitionists. Uh, we could quote Eugene Debs saying the working class should have the right to Gatling guns if Gatling guns are being used against them. It's about, you know, of course, the individual right of self-defense, but it's also about the right to defend society. Uh, and it's a, the right to defend the working class. So to defend a picket line in the United States has always involved strike marshals who are armed, facing scabs, Pinkertons, you know, company men. This has always required uh, the working class to be armed, as has what people now call civil rights, which they think means like, you know, the black struggle in America, it, of course, civil rights is something much broader than that. African-Americans were struggling for their civil rights, and they had to be armed to do that. Martin Luther King had armed bodyguards in the service of his being able to prosecute a nonviolent civil disobedience campaign. They didn't want their leaders to simply be assassinated, which is what would happen. People see these films of black people and their allies, you know, marching through Alabama. Mm -hmm. You know, that is impossible unless you're armed in 1964. Mm -hmm. That would have been impossible. The police were the KKK. Of course, people were armed against yeah, yeah. the state. They were armed against the state. They were armed against other people. And so these are important rights for the left, but they are bourgeois rights. You know, there's nothing socialist inherently about them, just like the right of free speech, the right to assemble. These are the things that Marx and Engels lambasted LaSalle for compromising on, mm -hmm. saying they're more important than democracy. This is the misunderstanding, though, because someone from a liberal like today's liberal perspective would listen to that Spencer and say, of course, I am for arming people that defend Martin Luther King. I am for the Black Panther Party carrying guns. I am for all of this. And yet 
you can't arm this white supremacist. What seems to have been lost is this notion of equality before the law. When you say bourgeois right, what do you mean? Inherently within your understanding is the principle of equality before the law. So the idea that you can arm the people that you politically agree with and then or, that, or that you're going to let the capitalist state adjudicate right. the question of who has rights. Yeah. I mm -hmm. mean, that's the absurdity, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, really what we're talking about is depend upon the cops and the Democratic Party. Yeah. yeah. It's, who's, it's who's right. You know, it's, it's politically disarming the mm -hmm. people. Yes. Yeah. And so there's this been the slanderous, like unfounded affiliation of Rittenhouse to white supremacy. And then it's like, well, the white supremacists don't have the right to self-defense. Um, and so it's a case of who's right. And it always comes down to yep. um, the Democratic Party. The, the white supremacists don't have the right to commit murder. They don't have the right to commit crimes. And if they try to come to rallies and commit crimes, of course, you know, people would have the right to defend themselves and the police would be justified in arresting them. That's all there is to say about it. Yeah. You know, there was this interview with Ira Glasner that we've brought up before with the head of the ACLU, who has since then retired, where he talks about defending the rights of KKK members to have their rallies. And he makes the point that you just made, Spencer, which is if we take away the rights of these people, to assemble and to express their beliefs. If we say that the state is in charge of adjudicating who gets those rights versus who doesn't, like what stops them, you know, if they're your enemies in power from taking those rights from you? And that universal dimension of bourgeois right, I think is what's completely lost. This man is just a, what we would might call a principled liberal, you know, and he's he just kind of gets it. And um, we'll link the, the interview in the episode description. And, and he's speaking from this perspective because the ACLU has since gone through some reforms, which include fighting for this particularist notion of rights, that some people may have certain rights and others should not. And I guess that's something that Marx and Engels could take for granted as the bourgeois right to build socialism, but we can't. And we yeah. should we should note that, you know, black people are protected by the right of self-defense. Yeah, of course they are. On the day of the Kyle Rittenhouse case, uh, there was a case, I believe, in North Carolina, a man named Andrew Coffey, who was acquitted of attempted murder of the police for shooting at the police when they were coming in without a warrant, you know, without announcing themselves. Uh, whether they had a warrant or not. And he returned fire. His They were trying to convict him of felony murder because the police, in shooting back at him, killed his girlfriend, and they were trying to convict him of that murder, which is a crazy application of, of American so-called felony murder law. So, of course, people have to have this right. And the real point is the Democrats are not going to do one thing to make all of you know, there is a great deal of injustice in the Amer in American criminal in the American criminal justice system, in you know the police, incarceration, way defendants are are treated in trial, the absence of of adequate defense, uh, etc. 
they're not going to do anything about it. They're not even talking about it. They don't even talk about it. They don't talk about doing anything for the people that they claim to be defending. They just want to be on the side of prosecutors <laughs> or something when they're prosecuting white people for killing, you know, not even black people in Kyle Rittenhouse's case, you know, basically for killing Democrats, I guess. Maybe this is where we can tie this to this consolidation of the anti-racist propaganda by the Democratic Party under Biden. And, you know, one thing that was pretty strong narrative in this Rittenhouse coverage was the line about January 6th and that Rittenhouse is an example of what's lurking just around the corner, you know, white, racist, armed young men who are ready to overthrow government. And it sort of got folded into that. And I guess there there was this moment where at least people on the on the more kind, like the Matt Taibbi's types um, who were dissenting from the MSNBC uh, line saw that there was a, a dangerous collapse of accusations against Rittenhouse as being some kind of uh, militia white supremacist and anyone who expressed uh, opposition to like Democratic Party governance and, you know, to criminalize essentially anybody that disagrees with the Democratic Party to turn them into threats that the public should thank the Biden administration for keeping at bay. And that seems to have been the narrative. There is the question, ultimately, of the Democrats' hysteria in the age of Trump and that as an occasion for the liquidation of the American left. So anti-Trumpism drove or was accompanied by a real gutting of the American left via a liquidation into the DSA. And telescope all of that you know a hysteria born of a sense of helplessness in the face of history in the face of the crisis of neoliberalism uh trump is a, as symbolic of the transformation of the social and political order with which the left was utterly unprepared to deal utterly unprepared to lead society and in the face of that We've been dealing with this absolute meltdown of even the most basic liberal sensibilities in the United States, you know, assaults on free speech as hate speech, assaults on, you know, you know the Facebook wouldn't allow anyone to post on the Kyle Rittenhouse mm-hmm. case, just like Facebook has been censoring media in general in the U.S. that's not pro-Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Of course, you know, the vilification of the right to assemble, right, the refusal to distinguish between the protests and the riots at the Capitol on January 6th, right, calling the very act of assembling of insurrection, right, so a, a full-scale assault on liberal sensibilities mm-hmm. and on bourgeois rights. You know, we have to think of this in terms of the farcical replay of the trajectory of the new left. Because the DSA has that, you know, it just overshadows their imagination, right? And why is race bound up with that, right? 
because the civil rights movement, which is the most important thing the new left did and was the galvanizing moment of the new left, promised a complete reorganization of American politics, ultimately the formation of a socialist party. That was widely strategized. That's what gave rise to the project of building a new left was that occasion. And instead, the civil rights movement revivified capitalist politics mm -hmm. for more than a generation, for the entirety of, of neoliberalism. And now that neoliberalism is falling apart, you see these young people insisting on kind of replaying you know, the individual heroism and, you know, what used to be called like bearing moral witness, you know, now they call it virtue signaling, like being heroic and being lawless and being hysterical. And it feels like the weathermen on the days of rage or something, right? Except they're actually burning the cities down. You know, that began to happen in the late 60s and 70s as it was dawning on the new left our moment has passed, we failed, we haven't accomplished what we hope to accomplish, and we don't know how. We don't know how to go, where to go from here. And I think that that's what you have to think about in terms of the whole phenomenon of BLM in 2020, the BLM rioting in 2020 and 2021, right? This is, a, these are people who are really rioting against the Democrats who are licensing their rioting in the sense that they're rioting against their own political helplessness, perhaps made more acute by their sense of helplessness in the face of COVID, which was occurring at the time. Uh, you know, I think that this question of like, why is the left so segregationistly racist anymore? Right, that they have to create racial issues even when they're not there. It's like the it's like the Jesse Smollett case, right? It's deeply, deeply troubling and you know, disintegrative of society. So we're kind of haunted by that despair of the um, late new left in the late 60s, 70s, but today it doesn't have its object as well or it's unconscious. It's it's yeah. now racist to say that there's no distinction between people by race, you know, in any significant way in terms of their talents and their abilities and whatever. I think it's the politics of fear. I mean, this is something that we started talking about actually on the first episode of this podcast and this threat, the uh, amorphous threat of fascism that then Trump represented for Democrats, how it got presented. Right. And so now that amorphous threat, since Trump is no longer in power, is projected onto the the lurking fascists that are now armed and are everywhere. I don't know that that seemed to be the strongest narrative for me that I, I spoke to a couple of people that are just straight up Democrats. And I wanted to to understand, like, what was important for them. And for them, it was like setting a precedent that certain things were allowed and that what was allowed here was a continuation of this kind of insurrectionary spirit, which they did not distinguish from a protest at the Capitol. Rather, it was not a protest. It was an insurrection. Um, it's a, it was the beginning of a civil war. And this is the way that people talk now. They've kind of naturalized this they, language. They've, they've now gotten it to the point where protesting at the Capitol is a crime. Yeah. 
but burning down places mm -hmm. of business where people work, attacking civil society is fine. Yeah. Going all the way back to, you know, English liberty, the, in, the issue is one of petitioning your grievances to yeah. Parliament. Yeah. There is no more natural place in the world to present, you know, to yeah. protest than at the Capitol. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not agreeing yeah. with crimes committed at the Capitol. Yeah. But, you know, they act like attacking civil society is no crime at all. Yeah, and it's already been noted, but the the people, the civil society that's been attacked has been of people of all races as well that um, that have been um, yeah. destroyed, looted, whatever. Yeah, I think we shared the, the image of the 1966 protest by the Black Panther Party at the California State House just as a way of uh, reminding people, do you really want to criminalize all acts of protest? Right. What would it mean to do so? The kind of hypocrisy of turning this into an expression of white supremacy um, by people that are supposedly standing behind black Americans. The car dealerships that Kyle Rittenhouse was asked to protect were not owned by white people. My understanding is is that these were these were immigrants. Mm -hmm. They were. I think they were second generation in immigrants. The two, the two guys that were interviewed. I think they're Middle Eastern immigrants, if I recall. And, you know, they had Black Lives Matter on the, you know, on the marquee or whatever of their business. And when you look at the film, you know, there are dozens of cars on fire. Mm -hmm. Right. And it was in it was after watching that that Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, who apparently his his friend who he went with knew the owners of that car dealership. It's just, you know. It, it, there's nothing left wing about it. That I'll, I'll yeah. suffice it to say that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I guess just to reiterate the points that were made earlier, right? The idea that civil protest is going to be criminalized depending on what side of the aisle you're on. Like that's, that's a problem for, for everyone and anyone who's trying to build socialism in the United States or who's even considering the question in, in America and so is criminalizing the act of owning owning a gun or carrying it or carrying a gun right which which i find to be the hypocrisy of people like daniel lazar who's essentially saying you know these are outdated laws because now we have a police it all sounds very confused yeah um well thank you spencer for joining us today and i hope that it helped our audience clarify some of the issues at hand to kind of return to the basics of bourgeois right. Thank, Thank you, you guys. Bye guys. Sorry. Bye. 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 construction industry has been shut down for two weeks after violent protests at the CFMEU headquarters in Melbourne. Police were attacked by protesters in high-vis who claim union leaders haven't done enough to resist compulsory jabs. Okay, I'm here in my Zoom call with uh, Sue Bolton. 
Sue Bolton is an elected member of the local Moreland Council in Melbourne, Australia since 2012. She is a member of the Socialist Alliance and has a background in the union movement as a rank-and-file member. She has also written an article about the recent CFMEU protests. Also on the Zoom call is Ryan. Ryan is a member in the Platypus chapter in Melbourne. So thanks a lot to the both of you for being here. Sue, what made you turn to leftist politics? What, what is your history with the left? I think I really probably started to question a lot of things um, when I was a student. When I was a student, it was a regional campus in Queensland. And so I didn't come across anyone who self-identified as a socialist although there would have been socialists on the campus I was on. Um, the area was fairly conservative, but I think I just started to question a lot of elements of society and I started to get involved in activism, although I wouldn't have called myself a socialist at that point because I didn't really know. Um, and I came from a country background, so um, in the rural areas, the left is... Um, not really in existence in, you know, right in the bush. Um, so I didn't really come across socialist ideas till I came to the big city. Great. And can you maybe just say how you got involved with the Socialist Alliance and maybe describe a little bit about that organisation? Well, I first got involved in an organisation called the Socialist Workers' Party, which um, in 1982, which later on changed its name to the Democratic Socialist Party, And that party uh, formed the Socialist Alliance in 2001 in uh, collaboration with another socialist organisation called International Socialist Organisation. And, you know, my entry into socialist politics was, you know, probably not till a few years after I left campus, feeling like following uh, some sort of professional background as a psychologist was you know, really just counselling people and sending them back out to the world that's caused their problems rather than changing society. And so I went in a different path and then I, you know, did factory work and also later on bus drive, I was became a bus driver and uh, with the Socialist Workers Party had a lot of members involved in blue collar work, um, not just white collar work and not just student work. And so um, I think I related to that pretty well, the idea that social change and socialism is for everyone, not just an educated elite, um, but is for every person, regardless of whether you've got a deep intellectual understanding of the issues or just a basic sense of injustice. And then Socialist Alliance was formed in 2001 in response to the anti-corporate globalisation movement, which was much bigger in Europe uh, and the US and Australia. In Melbourne, we had tens of thousands circle and blockade the Crown Casino when the World Economic Forum came to Melbourne. And there was a huge questioning um, of society at that time I wouldn't say it was necessarily socialist, but there was started to be a lot of questioning about capitalism. And then at the same time, one of the other left organisations, the International Socialist Organisation, started to be interested in the question of left unity. And the 
Democratic Socialist Party had always been interested in left unity because we felt felt that there are a lot of groups that are revolutionary and really we should be working together even though there might be some differences and there are a range of different revolutionary currents um, that we need to relate to. And so we'd always had that position. So the anti-corporate globalisation movement plus the change of position of the international socialists allowed us to launch Socialist Alliance. And at that time, there was a militant left current within the trade union movement in Melbourne. And we threw open the doors for anyone and everyone to join and get involved. And quite a few different left organisations did get involved. A lot of them were tiny, though, like more like study circles, I guess you'd say. But the really significant thing was there was a grouping of left trade unionists, militants, some who'd been around the old Communist Party, never really trained in socialist politics, but you'd probably say more socialist leanings rather than, you know, people who'd studied socialism. And that was um, a really important thing in the early days of Socialist Alliance, although Socialist Alliance has changed quite a bit since then. Fantastic. Thank you. For our international audience, can you give a short summary of the incident at the CFMEU headquarters, that is the Construction, Forestry, Maritime, Mining and Energy Union that took place on Melbourne on September 20th, and how you understand the events of that day? I found it quite a surprise and quite shocking. In Melbourne, like has happened in other parts of the world as well, the far right has tried to latch itself onto other movements to try and become popular and recruit to their cause. And so they very quickly did tap into the anti-vax, anti-vaccination um, movement, I guess you'd call it, or and the anti-lockdown movement, um, you know, pe- um, people who oppose any kind of restrictions um, to try and stop the spread of COVID-19. And so the far right's in there with that crowd and there had been some protests against vaccinations, against lockdowns, and they had called a protest outside the CFMU office. Now, I suspect that the reason for that is because there were some CFMU members who were anti-vax and they probably wanted their union to take a stronger position against the vaccine. Now, to be clear for anyone who's listening, the construction union has a position of supporting the COVID vaccine. Uh, They strongly support the COVID vaccine, but they were opposed to the idea of making it mandatory. Um, I think they believe that you could actually get almost 100% vaccination rate on building sites through voluntary vaccination and explaining away people's fears, et cetera. And most of the big union sites were already had high levels of vaccination, whereas a lot of the non-union sites, the small housing sites, which are generally not unionised, probably had very low rates of vaccine. Although there was one union site where there was a cluster of cases, quite a large cluster of cases. And also in the construction industry and some other blue-collar jobs, there has been a tradition of opposing compulsory drug tests because a lot of bosses in a range of industries try to enforce compulsory drug tests 
which is very discriminatory because, I mean, obviously the union doesn't want anyone to be dangerous on site, like under the influence of drugs on site, because you can cause someone to die or get seriously injured. But they... um, but they certainly don't want it to be mandatory, and especially as some drugs like marijuana stay in your system for a long time, well after you've actually experiencing any kind of influence from the drug. That's a bit of a background in terms of the industry of opposing bosses, you know, making medical procedures uh, mandatory. And so I think that also taps into a feeling amongst some CFMU members of being opposed to the mandatory vaccine, um, even possibly amongst some some construction members who probably recognise the need to get vaccinated themselves but have a sort of almost like a libertarian view of no vaccine mandate especially. And so because of that, the anti-vax crowd decided to have a protest outside the union office and that had been planned in a couple of weeks, like two or three weeks previously and also the anti-vax crowd also published a poster for that rally saying that was supported by the construction union the manufacturing work mainly blue collar unions and of course it was a lie so the unions all had to put out leaflets and memes saying this is not endorsed by our union so it's clear that the far right is trying to infiltrate the unions um, absolutely and trying to find a way of um, getting an audience, especially amongst the male blue-collar unions because a lot of con- unions like construction unions in Australia, don't know, but in Germany tend to be, you know, probably 90% male and maybe 10% or even 5% female. So that's sort of the nature of that. And then in the Telegram chats amongst the anti-vaxxers, there was a discussion about bring any high-vis gear you've got, borrow high-vis gear to make it look like you're a construction worker. And on the day, there were definitely high-vis shirts and jackets handed out to try and make anti-vaxxers who are not in the union blend in um, with with the workers. And so there were definitely non-people who had no association with the industry posing as um, construction workers. But there were definitely construction workers there still. But amongst that grouping, you have to also separate it out a bit And because it's not just like just because you're wearing a high-vis jacket doesn't necessarily mean you're a worker. There were bosses there who work on site, so they wear high-vis. Like a lot of occupations have high-vis, use high-vis gear these days for safety reasons, uh, which is actually a good thing, but it does make blur class boundaries so there would have been workers there who are not members of the union workers there from other industries workers from the non-union sector of um, construction there were were bosses there like subcontractors etc and then there were some union members there as well including some who um, are close to the secretary of the union Um, The Secretary of the Union comes from a Croatian background and in Melbourne, in Australia, a lot, not all Croatians are right-wingers, but there is like quite a strong right-wing current within that community. And so there were definitely, there was one particular crane company where the boss is virulently anti-vax 
and therefore quite a lot of the workers were anti-vax. And then as the protests wore on, people got bored, people got drunk. Then I also think there are probably some provocateurs in the crowd. And so then the violence started and it was pretty full on. Like basically they totally smashed in the windows of the union office. The union office had to call in all of the a whole lot of their delegates, including some of their younger delegates. I mean, so they had to have a full-on defence of the CFMU office. Historically, how has it come to the point that some Australian unionists would attack their own headquarters? And uh, what role did the left play in that process, that historical process? Well, I've never seen this happen before. This is a first. I can't think of any other example of workers attacking their own union office. Now, I'm not sure if the workers who started the smashing of the windows were actually, um, I'm not sure if they were union members. They might not have been union members because that's where you sort of have to really sort of get a feel for who's in the crowd. There were, I think, some union members who were involved with the anti-vax protests who were probably trying to discourage others from being engaged in the violence against the union office. And I did see in the media an interview with one guy who said that he'd only come to the protest because he had a friend who was going to lose his job because he didn't want to get the vaccine. And he was opposed to that, even though he was fully vaccinated himself. So, I mean, that is can be sometimes something which happens when you have a a mandatory vaccination. But I think there were also some other factors at play. I think the government and the chief health officer were genuinely frightened about the level at which the COVID cases were escalating in Melbourne, including in the construction sector. And so even though the heavily unionised site have generally very good COVID practices um, as a result of the union, there was one union site where there was a an outbreak and then a whole lot of non-union or less unionised sites where there were outbreaks. So I think they were genuinely scared because this industry has operated right through the COVID outbreak since the very beginning. The union and the bosses put a lot of pressure on the state government to allow the industry to keep going and the union insisted on a lot of COVID-safe practices But, of course, you know, you do have a large number of people in a small area. And so the government also made an announcement just a couple of days beforehand on the Friday before this protest. So the protest was on a Monday. The government announced on a Friday that they were going to shut down uh, workers' lunch sheds. But I think probably the people who made the decision have no idea what life's like on a construction site where, like, especially a large site, even with reduced numbers on site because of COVID, it's still, you might have 500 workers where they're going to eat their lunch. Often there's a lot of toxic stuff on site, dust, all the rest of it. And also they're not meant to congregate in terms of local laws on the footpath to eat their lunch. Maybe some small enterprises could get away with that, but not a large construction site. And so there was sort of like a protest on the Friday 
in response to that announcement where people pull their tables and chairs out onto the footpath, but some workers decide to take it a bit further and, and plonk them across the tram tracks and across the road and have their smoker out on the streets. Now, mind you, there wasn't much traffic in Melbourne at the time because of the lockdown, but um, they made their point. I mean, I thought it was quite, you know, quite cute <laughs> in some ways, but that sort of fed into it. And then the union was trying to work out some arrangement with the bosses so that workers maybe could work an extra hour in the morning and then go home on paid time to deal with the issue of the lunch sheds. And I think the problem was the government just made a blanket announcement, no contact with the union, whatever. And I think, okay, I know, you know, there is going to have to be some level of top-downness, but I think there is there can be problems with that approach. And I think you saw that in the construction industry. So some workers then went to the CFMEU to protest because they didn't agree with the way the CFMEU was trying to resolve that by working a bit longer and then getting paid time off. Plus the bosses were not prepared to pay people to take the time off. And then that coincided with the anti-vax protests It was just a general sort of frustration and feeling like the union wasn't opposing the mandatory vaccination. Picking up on that, let's uh, move away from the events in Melbourne and talk a bit about what happened in Rome uh, at the beginning of October. Several hundred protesters attacked the offices of the CGIL, the General Confederation of Labour, the biggest union in, in Italy. Do you see any similarities or, well, distinctions between the CGIL attack in Italy and the CFMEU incident in Melbourne? If you think about the origins of the fascist movement, like in Nazi Germany, you know, they claim to be against big business, big government, big unions. And so I think this is a dangerous turn. And I think it is a dangerous period for the left and for the union movement because, you know, you have a, an infectious disease which requires a collective approach in, in order to try and, you know, keep it under control so that we don't have, you know, massive deaths. It means that the left, is, it is tricky because the left is perceived to be supporting a lack of democracy and the unions are perceived to be supported by the anti-vax, anti-lockdown protesters. So the fascists, the far right, have been trying to get support from unionists for a few years in Australia, but this is their best effort now, right now um, if, it, if it can continue. It, well, they hope it can continue. And the reason for that I'm saying that is, Since about 2016, the far right have been contacting some of the male blue-collar unions asking support for some of their racist rallies. And some of the unions are quite political and have just said no. Some of the unions have just had a more apolitical response of no, 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 we can't endorse any side. And so the far right has been trying to find a way of trying to pull that male blue-collar sector in particular towards the far right. Now, the vast majority of working-class people in Australia support the vaccination rollout. I mean, there are very high rates of vaccination in Australia, 
but there is a small number of people who are, are totally opposed to the vaccine, you know, for whatever reason, some conspiracists, some who through the wellness industry or gym scene, scene where people are quite happy to inject steroids but um, not not keen to have the COVID vaccine. These are some of the sectors that are coming together in the context of lower rates of unionisation in Australia. Um, we've probably got the lowest rate of unionisation for a very long time, like the rates have kept going down since we had a Labor government in the early 80s, um, which was the beginning of the trend downwards in terms of unionisation in Australia. I think they are trying to pose as being, you know, for freedom and so forth. And I've had some conversations recently between some people who would consider themselves as being left-wing, who've been attracted to the anti-vax. Some of the conversation I had with them is that the anti-vax protests, there are no demands. Like, for instance, there's no demands about pandemic pay for workers who are forced to isolate. There's no demands to ease the burden. And, in fact, the demands, it's totally individualistic. It's really about freedom of the individual, not freedom for everybody. And also what I notice in some of the conversations is a lack of consideration of the impact of the virus on working class families. Uh, and so there's been a total lack of consideration about the overwhelming of the, of the health service and the hospitals and so forth. And so conditions for ambulance workers, nurses, doctors, other workers in the hospitals are really atrocious. Yeah, so it's totally individualistic. And so I think it's within that context that these attacks on the unions have happened because it's almost like saying the unions are just like big government or big business. And so it's another appeal for people to leave their unions. Let's stay with that problem of freedom for a bit. You post it as a sort of dichotomy between this individualistic account of maybe like libertarian minded workers and against the sort of collectivist approach put forth by the unions. Within this dichotomy, let's say, like what should the role be of large established trade unions with regard to, to vaccine mandates proposed by the government? And how should a socialist left relate to such mandates? Like, and how does that sort of relate to that problem of freedom? How do you relate sort of big unions, vaccine mandates and the problem of freedom? Mm. Well, I think it's tricky. I don't think there's any simple answer to any of this. And I think I also think some of the governments have um, tried to use the, co the COVID crisis to try and implement more police, you know, you know, give more weapons to the police and so forth. So, so I think the governments have tried to take advantage of the situation. But I think... Actually, our position in Socialist Alliance is probably a bit similar to a lot of the unions. So most of the unions support the vaccine, encourage people to get vaccinated, but are opposed to the vaccine mandate. And that is Socialist Alliance's position as well. Although I would say the unions and Socialist Alliance have not necessarily gone out explicitly campaigning against the mandate. 
because in a sense that then starts to create the impression that you're opposed to the vaccine. Now, there are some different positions on the left, but I think for people who support vaccine mandates, for unions, there is a real practical issue. They've got members who are refusing to take the vaccine, and that even includes health unions. Now, Socialist Alliance's position is that there are some workplaces where it's justified, where people are working with vulnerable members of the community, like people who are sick or aged care homes or uh, Indigenous community or people with disabilities and so forth. Like there are people who are very vulnerable to the COVID-19. And so there are some places where we would accept a COVID mandate. You know, in talking about freedom, I think freedom can't just be an individual thing. It actually has to be a collective thing. I think this is where the... um, class composition of the protests is really important because while some people no doubt are workers, class consciousness is not as strong in Australia. So you often have working class people who believe they're middle class and maybe spurn the term working class because they sort of feel like being called working class is like a slur, so they want to be known as middle class. But I think, you know, people who are self-employed, bosses, etc., do have an individualistic consciousness. And over the years, I've had people say to me when you're doing a street stall saying, oh, why should I pay taxes for the public hospitals? I never get sick, so I don't need public hospitals. Or why should my taxes go towards childcare? I don't have children. So you've sort of got those sort of attitudes around. It's those sort of self-interested kind of attitudes that are fostered by the anti-vax movement and yeah so I think the word freedom is being put up there but it is really just freedom for themselves and stuff everybody else but it is tricky situation for the left as well it's not easy to work out what we should be doing you know the rates are starting to come down and that is really because of the vaccine Um, I think the vaccine has led to the rates coming down of hospitalisation and the rates of infection. But I also think that you can't just rely on the vaccine mandate. You actually have to try and see if you can have the conversations, the appropriate people to have conversations with people to try and work out why. There might be some people you're never going to convince, um, but why you have to sort of really try and come to grips with why people aren't getting the vaccine. And also this is where the religious right comes in because I just saw something the other day in Papua New Guinea, something like 1.7% of people have been vaccinated. And, of course, when Australia was a colonising power in Papua New Guinea, there was no public education. All schools are run by various churches, mostly Pentecostal churches and the Pentecostal churches have been against the vaccine but you can't just deal with all of that just through mandates you actually have to really try and find whatever means you can to be able to talk with and communicate with people in a in a way that doesn't treat people like shit. I just want to pick up on one thing you said you mentioned the 
declining rates of union membership in Australia since the, the ALP in the 1980s and also the overwhelming of the welfare system. And I was wondering how, how do we understand, how do we on the left understand the relation between the, the medical crisis of the pandemic and the accumulated political crisis of neoliberalism in the present? Well, I think what's happened in Australia when the Labor government was elected in 1982, there was about 75% unionisation in Australia. It might have even been up as high as 80%. And through the Labor government at the, in the 80s, implementing a prices and incomes accord, which I think maybe you've had similar things perhaps in Germany, I think. In Britain, they called it a social contract. The premise of it was if workers hold their wages down, there'll be more job, more money to invest in jobs and the Labor government would provide more in terms of the social wage, either spending on health and education, etc. Well, unfortunately, unions held their side of the bargain. They held it pretty ruthlessly, like repressed any attempts by workers to have strike action for higher pay. And that period, we got an index pay, but the index pay was always behind inflation. So that was the beginning of the reversal of wages going up at the expense of profits. And so um, workers really didn't see the net, if there were no campaigns for wages and new agreements, like a lot of workers didn't see the point of being in unions because there were no campaigns, new workers to an industry might not join the union because they didn't know anything about what unions were about. And so um, that was the beginning of deunionisation in Australia And also it was the beginning of a trend up until probably from the Second World War till the early 80s, the wages share of the um, national um, gross income was increasing at the expense of profits, was going to record record levels. Ever since 1982 up until today, that has gone the the opposite way with profits going up and up and up and wages going down and down and down. So that's been incredible and that's been coincided with, well, it's an international policy, it's not just in Australia, of basically getting rid of permanent work and replacing it with casual work and also in a lot of cases forcing workers to become their own bosses. So, and of course, when you become your own boss or self-employed, it can change your outlook on the world. So you might not, you might start to see yourself as a boss rather than a worker, even if maybe you're really substantially doing what you used to do or what used to be um, done as a wage employee. And so those two things have been happening hand in hand. And then It's gone hand in hand with neoliberalism, which has included incredible privatisation, not just the big sell-off of government enterprises, but the creeping privatisation or outsourcing where the Australian capitalist class has learnt from the British capitalist class, like the whole shift um, and undercutting of the public sector has just gone in incredible degree 
Um, and so those processes have been happening all at the same time, which has led to a crisis in our health system during COVID. I'd like to mention another article that was published in uh, Green Left. This article talks about, well, another dichotomy or a dilemma that, that unions, especially in Italy, but not only in Italy, face. And that's a dilemma between sort of more conservative union leadership and its rank and file. So this article we will we'll link um, to in the description of this episode. It's uh, by Dave Callaway, and he argues that activists and trade unions will face this dilemma. Um, and he states, for example, that the CGIL secretary, so in Italy, Maurizio Landini, is closely collaborating with the Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi to manage the COVID crisis. But uh, Dave Callaway argues that, that this also includes the CGIL resi resisting calls for a general strike to stop, uh, for example, the plant sackings at a car plant and, and a number of other factories. So at the same time, then smaller strikes organized by like minority union currents are then indulgent of anti-vax movements. Callaway quotes then Franco Turigliato. Uh, he's an ex-senator and uh, leader of Sinistra Capitalista. He says, and I quote, I go to the events and mobilizations organized both by, by the Trade Union Confederation Majority Current as well as those called by the rank and file unions. But I'm always concerned and also depressed by the co-management proposals put forward by the conservative leadership as well as the understandably rebellious but often lacking real political substance of the rank-and-file currents. So what do you make of that dichotomy? How do you think it can be overcome from the left? Well, I, we were also critical in Australia of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, collaboration with the bosses and the government. And I think basically that didn't get the ACTU anywhere other than the government trying to bring the ACTU into agreement with um, some attacks on unions, um, like um, trying to bring the ACTU into supporting some particular legislation, which had a couple of positive aspects, but actually also included some real attacks on, the, on workers' rights. Um, so then the ACTU was forced out of that process. So I do think, I mean... It is legitimate for the unions to negotiate um, with the government and the bosses about, you know, rights and protections for workers under COVID. But I definitely, um, we definitely oppose the idea of some sort of co-management, um, some sort of permanent alliance like that um, or co-management. And like in Australia, um, some unions did engage in a number of, strikes and protests in order to win COVID safe workplaces. Since the Labor government came into power in the early 1980s, we've never been able to fully rebuild the trade union movement. And so what you see happen is there is, in most unions, a very large passive rank and file, um, which comes together when there's enterprise bargaining negotiations but also those enterprise bargaining negotiations are enterprise by enterprise with the exception of, of a few areas such as 
hospital nurses or teachers and like there are very few unions that hold what we used to hold regularly in the 1970s which was industry-wide mass meetings so the metal metal workers union in the 70s held industry-wide strikes industry-wide mass meetings so you'd have thousands of workers coming together and because they were engaged in a lot more industrial action then than now it meant there were a lot of workers who had experience with industrial action and who could also speak up in union meetings if they thought their leaders were being too conservative or whatever um, had disagreements with them. Whereas quite often now, the only people who speak up in a lot of union meetings tend to be people who come from the left. Whereas in, you know, the 70s, which is a long time ago now, often just ordinary rank and file militants who are not members of any left party would have spoken up. Um, they, they had a lot of experience and com- therefore confidence to basically say, no, you're wrong, we should go harder or whatever it is. And whereas now um, sometimes in union meetings, like mass meetings of teachers, for example, when the left gets up to try and push for stronger action than the leadership's putting forward, often a lot of the younger teachers who've had no experience of militant unionism from the past and have had no experience of the left then sort of often, uh, unless they've got someone in their workplace to put a different point of view, often will sort of blindly follow the leadership. And it's not their fault. It's just because there's a real, um, I mean, sometimes maybe the left might look like they're carping and being very negative about the leadership by, you know, pushing for more action against what the leadership's putting forward. And so maybe some of the teachers who are new to teaching don't understand that the the leadership is playing a really bad role of sitting on sitting on top of the teacher's action and and trying to uh, you know downplay it and and um only have minimum action and so the only way you can overcome that is to try and do as much action as you can from from the rank and file but i think in australia the left is actually quite weak very weak in the unions. I mean, it doesn't mean there aren't some really great people, activists, not just members of left parties, but left-minded people and and militant-minded people. But I also think it is very weak in Australia. And so it does mean I think we've got a very bureaucratised union movement. And in some ways, when I look, compare Australia with, say, France or Italy or... um, you know, places like India or Philippines, the fact that we've got a system very similar to the British system where you've just got one trade union federation, in one sense you could say that's a positive thing because it brings everyone under the same banner. But in another sense, what it means is the Labor Party just totally dominates, uh, our Social Democratic Party totally dominates the ACTU and all the union leaderships in Australia. And what I notice when you look at, say, how some strikes develop in France and other countries, sometimes it's the most left of the union federations might initiate industrial action and then other, the more conservative wings come on board later on, like maybe the Communist Federation might initiate action 
and then the Social Democratic Federation comes on board later. So in some, I actually think the fact that we've only got one union federation in Australia is uh, allows this whole bureaucratism to develop because it tends to pull everything to the right rather than to the left, but it's not the right time or there's no, you know, you couldn't, I mean, that's not an argument you'd mount at the moment in Australia. It would seem weird, but I, I think it is a historical fact and I think the left, at some point in the future when we have a strong left again in the union movement, I think we have to be prepared to break from the power of the bureaucrats there. Thanks a lot, Sue, um, for doing this interview with us. Oh, that was fantastic, Sue. Thanks a lot. Um, and, and we'll post links to both your articles in, well, in the introduction and in the description of the episode as well, the, your two articles on the CFMU. Thanks. Thank you so much. Take care. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Villaggi. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!